Welcome to the Shalhaba Community Church Podcast. We hope you're encouraged by the following message. So over the last few weeks in our morning services, we've been uh, we're doing a series looking through the book of Mark, haven't we? Um, it's a pretty short book, um, one of the Gospels there. And our series has been entitled All About Jesus. This morning, we're coming to the last of that. We've been looking over the last few weeks at um, who Jesus was, his humanity, some of the messages that he taught, um, some of the miracles that he worked. And the, the message this morning is entitled, The Victory of Jesus. So what comes to your mind when you think of victory? What are you thinking of? Is it a footy match? Is it the Formula One? Is it crossing the line at the Olympics? Victory. What do you think of? You can see it, can't you? The winning team, you know, the fist pumping, the medal around the neck, the trophy held high, the elation, the relief. All of that hard work has come to fruition. Success, victory. Humongous bottles of champagne being shaken all around. Everyone's getting sticky and messy. The victory of Jesus. What did Jesus win? How did he win it? Why did he win it? And what does Jesus' victory mean for you and me 2,000 years later on? Let's jump in and have a look. You want to open up to Mark chapter 14 this morning? These last few chapters of Mark are a recount of Jesus' last few days on earth. Like the rest of the book of Mark, it's a pretty... Fast, uh, fast-paced account. He doesn't. Mark doesn't give us a lot of details. He, he's pretty short and punchy, you know, j- just the bare details. He doesn't beat around the bush. But with the, the beginning of chapter fourteen, we see that Jesus has come to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's the Jewish capital. He's come there for the Passover feast. The Passover is the big event in the Jewish calendar. It's an eight-day celebration where for centuries the Jewish nation has been celebrating God liberating them from slavery of the Egyptians. And the place is packed. Jerusalem is overflowing. All the hotels and caravan parks are booked out. It's like summertime on the Gold Coast. People everywhere. No meter maids. Straight away, the first couple of verses, we see the religious leaders and the chief priests, the teachers... These guys who are entrusted to seek God and to teach the people. They're looking for some way to arrest Jesus and to kill him. Verses 1 and 2. Now the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the feast, they said or the people may riot. Not during the feast. Hmm. So we've got the very religious leaders that should be seeking out the Messiah. They know the scriptures. They've seen the prophecies. They should be seeking out this saviour. And they're making plans to do away with the guy. But they're afraid to do it publicly. The things are afoot that are going to play into their hands. 
When we move on, verses 3 through 9, we see Jesus out of town in Bethany, just a little village outside of Jerusalem. Probably the only place he could get accommodation. He's sitting at the table with his friends having dinner. And one of his followers, a woman, brings an alabaster vase of the most expensive perfume and breaks it and anoints him an act of great love and devotion by one of his followers. And then we see Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, one of his inner circle, I think probably a bit indignant about what's going on there. He heads off to the chief priests and delights them by offering to betray Jesus to them, exactly what they've been looking for at some time that's convenient when the crowds aren't around somewhere where the people can't get upset about what's going on. So there's a plot against Jesus that's set in motion here. Things have gone from the great popularity of Jesus when he's working his miracles to opposition, organised opposition against Jesus. But Jesus is still on his mission. He's still following the plan that God's given him. The next evening we come to the Passover meal and once again, in verse 18, Jesus predicts his betrayal to his disciples. Back in Mark 10, he told his disciples exactly what was going to happen. Mark 10, 33 and 34, Jesus speaking, he says, We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. So Jesus knows what's going on. He knows the path ahead. But here at the Passover meal, as Gary just spoke about this morning, Jesus initiates communion. This great reminder in these two simple symbols of what Jesus is going to do for all of mankind. And then together with the disciples, he heads out to the Mount of Olives and to Gethsemane in the darkness. And in Gethsemane, we see one of Jesus' great lessons in prayer. Mark 14, 36, Jesus speaking, praying. Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus was in that, in that tough spot, tougher than any of the spots we ever find in our lives, but something we can certainly relate to of when things are up against us, things are ahead of us that we can see <laughs> and we really don't want to go there. Jesus probably didn't really want to do what lay ahead. He didn't really want to take that cup he was talking about, that cup of God's wrath and the sin of mankind upon himself. And he's probably the only, only man, well, he was the only man, who could rightfully say he didn't deserve that. Yet he was still submitted to God's will for his life. What drove him above all was a love for his Father, a desire to obey and please his Heavenly Father, to 
follow the plan that God had for his life. And this is the key to Jesus' victory right here. It's one we can take note of ourselves. This is the how of Jesus' victory. Obedience and trust in God and his plans for our lives, regardless of what we want. It's a heart submitted to God. That's how victory is won. That's how we'll see victory in our lives, is a heart submitted to God. But now, even in the dark of night, at the most testing of times, nothing takes God by surprise, does it? Again, in verse 41 and 42, Jesus predicts his betrayal just before the crowd turns up. Jesus says, here they come. We see Jesus arrested and brought before the high priest. There's a bit of a kangaroo court where we know that the verdict's already been decided before the call happened. But we see Jesus. He doesn't make any defence. He just tells the truth. All his followers have disappeared. They've made themselves scarce. Even Peter, the boldest, denies even knowing Jesus. He's on his own now, isn't he? But our Jewish rulers have a problem. They're under Roman rule. So they can't pronounce a death sentence. So as predicted, early in the morning, Jesus is taken to Pilate. Gary just mentioned it this morning. Pilate is the Roman governor. And the governor is the judge and the jury. And he makes his decision based on cross-examining the defendant. And Pilate's stunned again at what's going on. Jesus doesn't make any defence of the accusations brought against him. Mark 15, 4 and 5. So Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply. And Pilate was amazed. So if no defence is made under Roman law, the defendant has to be found guilty. He hasn't denied anything. He hasn't rebutted anything. There's no choice but for Pilate to declare him guilty. But Pilate's obviously pretty uncomfortable about that because he hasn't seen anything deserving. He doesn't, doesn't really see a problem here. He doesn't find a fault with Jesus. He's obviously pretty uncomfortable about declaring a death sentence. So he tries to release Jesus under this little prisoner release scheme they've got going at the Passover as a goodwill gesture. The Romans release a prisoner of the crowd's choice at Passover. So Pilate tries to have Jesus released. But the Jewish rulers have stirred up the crowd to release another man instead. So Pilate, in his exasperation, he says to the crowd, well, what do you want me to do with this man? And what a difference a week makes. At the start of the week, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and the crowd shouted, Hosanna, which means save, a shout of praise. Come back to now, a week later. And what does the crowd shout? Crucify him. Jesus is handed over to the Roman garrison and he's scourged. A brutal whipping where the cords of the whip are embedded with bone and metal designed to tear your flesh apart. 
and the Roman garrison, as predicted, spits on him and mocks him and he's led out to be crucified. Doesn't look very victorious yet, does it? The victory of Jesus. Then we come to the crucifixion. Jesus, the Son of God, an innocent man, without sin or blemish, nailed to a cross, choosing to die a criminal's death. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We see Jesus' anguish as all our sin is placed upon him. We see darkness as God turns away and then his death. And all the while, Jesus' enemies are looking on and they're mocking him. (laughs) If you're really the son of God, come down from that cross. Then we'll believe in you. But things aren't always as they seem, are they? The spiritual is a different realm to the natural. We're between the two. There's one thing that Mark notes here in his account of Jesus' death that seems a bit out of place with what's going on at the crucifixion. Mark 15, 38. Mark recalls, The curtain in the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. That's a clue to what has really gone on here, remote from the scene of the crucifixion, what's really happening. It's a clue to the nature of Jesus' victory and of what... Jesus won. This curtain was a great thick barrier inside the temple. Inside the temple you have the holy place and the most holy place where God's presence is to dwell. And there's this great thick curtain, this great barrier between the two. And only once a year a priest goes in and offers sacrifice and incense, burns incense in the most holy place. This curtain is torn in two when Jesus dies. Tearing of this curtain signifies that the way has now been made for man to have direct access to God. This isn't a once a year event anymore. Access to God is now available to all men through what Jesus has done. We see Jesus' hurried burial. It's the day before the Sabbath. All work's got to cease by six in the evening. So things are in a bit of a rush now. Jesus has died. He's been taken down off the cross. He's placed in a tomb and a stone is rolled across the entryway. Still not looking very victorious, is it? Jesus' enemies probably slept pretty well that night, I reckon. They were probably pretty satisfied with what had gone on that day. Two days later, after the Sabbath, we see some of the women who followed Jesus heading out early in the morning to the tomb to embalm his body. In chapter 16, verse 6, they come to the tomb and they find the stone rolled away. And they see a man dressed in white who declares the three words that have forever changed our world. He 
is risen. This declaration of victory resounds in every believer's heart. A declaration by this angel sets the church in motion. That's why we're here today. So this account of Mark shows us the how and the what of Jesus' victory. How? By living a sinless life, completely submitted to his Father's calling. He conquered death. Romans 6.23, we've probably all heard it, says the wages of sin is death. But Jesus knew no sin, did he? So death had no hold on him. But Jesus chose to take that punishment for sin upon himself. He submitted to die a sinner's death for you and for me. And that's why Jesus came. That was his mission. You see, since Adam and Eve way back in Genesis, when Satan deceived them into rebellion against God, Satan had dominion. You remember that God gave dominion over all of creation to Adam. He delegated his authority to Adam. But by disobeying God, Adam unwittingly gave that dominion to Satan. So dominion lost by one man, Adam, was regained by one man, Jesus. So what does this mean for you and I, right here, right now? Well, Jesus made that clear in John 10.10. He says, I've come that they might have life, and life to the full, So what does that mean? Life to the full. Nice car. Nice house. Cool friends. Comfy life. What do you think? No. It means that if we accept Jesus, if what Jesus says about himself to be true, and we commit to following him, we participate in his victory, both now and forevermore. We now have this amazing access to God's presence. Remember that curtain in the temple was torn. We have a closeness that God originally intended between him and us. It's now been restored by Jesus. We have access to his peace. How valuable is that? We have access to his power, to his understanding, to his wisdom for our lives. And we have the help of his Holy, Holy Spirit. How good is that? But like Jesus, this isn't all for our benefit, is it? But it's for God's glory. Jesus didn't use the closeness he had to his Father for his own benefit, did he? And like Jesus, as we learn to follow him, to draw aside from our day-to-day, to connect with our Heavenly Father, all these things become ours but we also become part of God's awesome plans to bring this victory that he's won to other people also. He invites us to participate in his great plans of victory. So back to the beginning. Victory. Winning the race. Claiming the prize. Lifting the trophy high. You notice when we think about victory... We focus on the finish. It's not always the here and now, isn't it? It's important for us to focus, like Jesus did, on the finish. 
to keep our eyes, to keep our heart set on God's plans for our lives, to seek out his plans and to pursue those plans. There will be a price to pay, won't there? It wasn't easy for Jesus to do what he did. But through the victory he won. And this is where the victory in our lives is won. Hebrews 12.2 spells it out. It says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. See, Jesus now sits in the most powerful place there is, the most powerful position there is. His victory and his glory is eternal. He said it before he left the earth. He said it to his disciples. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now that's victory, isn't it? Complete victory. I could get the band back up again this morning, please. See, there's a, there's a victory waiting for us if we'll accept Jesus' invitation to follow him. It far outweighs any earthly success or any earthly glory that you can be pursuing. Earthly victory only lasts until the next race, or the next footy season, or the next set of circumstances. Just like Emmanuel spoke about last week, you can't take any of this earthly glory with you when you die. You come into the world empty-handed and you leave empty-handed. Most of the things that we pursue in this world won't last in eternity. They're temporary and they, de they depend upon our performance or our circumstances. But the victory that Jesus offers us is an eternal one. So what about you today? What victory or what glory are you chasing this morning? Will it last into eternity? Let's pray this morning. If I could ask you to bow your head and close your eyes with me. Today you might have come to understand that the victory that Jesus won includes you. Maybe for the first time or a renewed realisation of that fact. This morning Jesus is calling you. He's inviting you to accept his offer of victory in your life. He paid a great price for you. So precious to him that he was willing to die for you. Would you accept his offer of forgiveness and salvation today? If that's you this morning, if you'd say, yes, I want to follow Jesus. I want his forgiveness and his plans for my life. I'd love to pray for you. With heads bowed and eyes closed now, if this is you, would you raise your hand this morning so I could see it? Is that you this morning? Heavenly Father, 
We thank you for the victory that Jesus won. We thank you that you made the first move in sending Jesus to rescue us. Teach us each day to live out of this victory which Jesus has won. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.